Again, 2 Peter chapter 3, if you would please stand to honor the word of God as I read for you, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 10. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. Again, last week we came through this particular section of Peter's letter in the most uh, delightful of atmospheres, of being hot and humid and in the dark since we were without power. I'm grateful that you all took that in great stride and that we did not allow such things to hinder us from worshiping the Lord through the hearing of his word. I want to jump right back into our text this morning, first reminding you of what we covered so that we can then move ahead. It is in verses 3 through 10 that Peter is addressing now one of the major false teachings with which he was contending. And that false teaching was regarding the certainty of Christ's return. In fact, the argument was that Christ wasn't going to return at all. And there was then those who were not only outside of the church, but within the church, mocking and ridiculing this teaching that Jesus Christ is coming back. Since I was unable to show you the outline for 2 Peter 3, 3-10 last week, I offer it to you now. It's up there on the screen as it will guide us through Peter's arguments. For Peter, if a believer is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, his ultimate theme, he or she must know this. You must know with certainty that Jesus Christ will keep all of his promises one of the foremost of which in this moment Peter is addressing is the certain return of Christ for his bride, for his church. He will return. But sadly, there are those who contradict this teaching. And that brings us to the very first of our points, the contradiction of Christ's return. Uh, well, I guess uh, that's uh, the contradiction of Christ's return, this first point where Peter will address this in verses 3 through 7, how there are those who actually contradict this teaching. And he calls out those uh, here in this first point, the contradiction of Christ's return. And I would like to just remind you of these first two points that we covered last week. And the first is that Peter shows us the predicament of the mockers. He says, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust." He informs the readers of these people's predicament, their, their condition, the situation in which they find themselves. There are people who will put themselves in a contrary place to the teachings of Christ. He begins with that phrase, as we noted, know or knowing this, first of all. Peter is basically telling his readers, this is where I want to start. This is where we're going to start. I'm going to remind you that there are people who deny this particular teaching. I want you to start with the hard reality, Peter says, that there are those who oppose 
not only all of the teachings of Christ, but this specific one that he has in mind. Then we noted the use of the phrase, in the last days, a technical term used by New Testament authors to describe the period of time between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. It is the entire period in which the church finds itself. Peter found himself in the last days. Paul found himself in the last days. You and I live in the same time period referred to as the last days. Then Peter tells his readers that they are not to be surprised by those who mock what believers believe about Christ and his word, for all was foretold. The mockers will come with their mocking. The word for mockers, as the ESV we said translates it as scoffers, speaks of a person who is intensely desirous of deriding, defaming, ridiculing, putting down, making fun of, making sport of that which is of foremost importance. Mockers will use intimidation. Mockers will use illogical arguments. They'll do whatever they can to try to paint Christians as being silly, as being uninformed, as being ignorant for believing what they do. And mockers are not simply those who put down to poke fun, but the expression here is that these mockers mock because of their utter contempt for, for those who believe that Christ would return in this particular case, that they would believe the truths taught by Christ and his apostles. So Peter's saying, in a sense, hang on to your hats, uh, uh, thicken your skin, for as the day of Christ's return draws near, believers must be assured that the mockers will come, they are here, and they will come with ever-increasing intensity with their frivolous, scornful, hateful disregard for that which is good, that which is holy, that which is godly, that which Christ himself has said will come to pass. These mockers are not believers. They are not righteous. They are hostile to God, hostile to his revelation, and therefore hostile to God's people. Such mockers are not desirous or even able, as we see, to submit themselves to the way of God, for it says at the end there of verse 7 that they are following after. They're creating a long journey after their own lust, their own desires. The word lust speaks of desires there. It can be a good word if it's for positive things, but when it's after that which God has said is bad, we translate it as lust. These are people who rather than want to follow the moral excellence of Christ, who would rather than submit themselves to the teachings of Christ, are, are now following after their own desires. Beloved, either you are following after the Lord Jesus Christ and his moral excellence, or you are following after your own lust to your own doom. Mockers are those who are devoid of the spirit of God. They're governed by the passions of their flesh, whose God is their belly, Paul would say to the Philippians. They reject what the scripture teaches. Why? So that they can justify living the way that they do. They don't want to submit to Christ, and the only way to get around it is to deny that Christ has ever taught those things or that the Bible truly says such things. Know that they are present, Peter says. Know that they are in the church, Peter says. Know that ultimately they are hostile to God and his word, so be on the alert. Some will be passive about it and subtle. Others will be active, but this is their present condition. This is the predicament, and this brings us to the second characteristic we looked at last week, the pessimism of the mockers. Look at verse 4 where they, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. We were able to consider the nature of this question a bit last week, that they're asking this question, where is the promise of their coming? This is not, beloved, a sincere question. It is a pessimistic question. It is asked with mocking. The mockers will come with their mocking. Rather than being asked with sincerity, it is being asked with scorn. Rather than with reverence, it is with ridicule rather than with holiness, with hostility. The mockers are saying, in effect, this. Show us the evidence that Christ is coming again. Prove to us 
that Christ is actually going to return. And I think how strange of a question can you ask? Because it would be like asking Jesus while he was walking on this earth and saying, as he did so many times, that he would be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they would crucify him and he would be buried and he would raise on the third day. It would be like saying, prove to us, Jesus, that you're going to raise from the dead. Well, the only way to do it is what? Is to raise from the dead. The only way to prove that Christ is returning is for him to return. And so it's an interesting question. To, to, it cannot be proved until it comes to pass, but actually there's something far more sinister that's being revealed in this question because by asking this question, along with the subsequent argument that we'll get into today, uh, the, the, the argument is they're feeling justified in asking this because they're actually rejecting the truth of what Christ has taught. Because Christ taught that he would be handed over, that he would be crucified, that he would be buried, that he would raise the third day. He spoke those very words, and what happened, beloved? He was handed over, he was crucified, he was buried, and he did, praise the Lord, raise the third day. So based on that promise, we come now to the promise of Christ's return. Where is the evidence of his Return, it's, round, it's bound up in the resurrection of Christ itself. It's bound up in even more than that. It's bound up in the entirety of the word of God. They're rejecting the truth of God's word. They reject the very words of Christ as we went through uh, quite in depth last week. But Jesus made here this promise. You tell me, did Jesus say this? I, he did in John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Did he make that promise? He did. Has he returned yet? He has not. Has he made other promises that he has fulfilled? He has. So there is the evidence. To ask where is the promise of his coming is a rejection of the truth of Christ. Meanwhile, the promise of his return, as we noted last week, has been repeatedly spoken by Christ. The return of, the, of Christ is a major theme throughout the Old Testament, well spoken of by the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, Zechariah and Malachi, just to name a few. It is the same Jesus who taught the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and then be raised on the third day. To rise again again is just Jesus saying, there's the proof of what I will do. But their pessimism, their rejection of the reality of the return of Christ is amplified now, not simply by that question, but now look at the rest of verse 4 and the reason that they give for thinking that Christ is not going to return. It says, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Beloved, again, this is a rejection not simply of a specific teaching. This is a rejection of the entire content of the Old Testament, which is the testimony of what? What is the Old Testament? It is the testimony of God's continual intervention into the affairs of humanity. It's God constantly working through the nation of Israel supernaturally at times to demonstrate his power so that as, as uh, the book of Leviticus says over and over and the book of Ezekiel says over and over, so that they will know that I am the Lord. It's a denial of all these things. The mockers deny God's presence. God, the mockers deny God's intervention, his supernatural miracles. For them, everything is to be explained through natural means, not supernatural the mockers, Peter says, speak of the fathers, which is a reference to all those who have gone before them. And so he's, it's a reference to everybody who's died before and in their minds are taking it all the way back to the very patriarchs of Israel and even going beyond. Here is the essence of the false teaching Peter is seeking to address. Ready? The mockers say in effect that ever since Abraham... Well, no, ever since Noah, well, no, ever since Adam, 
Well, no, ever since the beginning of creation, God is absent. We have not seen him. We have not seen such intervention. God has not done anything in all this time. So what on earth would compel you to believe for a moment that anything's going to be different in the future? That Jesus, the one you call God, would return and set everything straight. They are clearly reasoning from a purely naturalistic, materialistic mindset. Some call this uniformitarianism, a big word that simply means that everything uh, we see has, uh, has simply always been and will always continue without any supernatural interference. If we were to put it in a pithy way, we'd say what is is what was and what is will always be. Figure that one out. What we see around us, according to uniformitarianism, is simply the slow unfolding of time and evolution. Does any of this sound familiar? There's nothing new under the sun. Oh, yes, there is some belief in what's called the Big Bang Theory, whereby all that we see came into existence from some infinitesimally small, dense matter that ex exploded and came, uh, and all that we see came into existence from from this little blob of dense matter. The mockers of today, however, say essentially the same thing as what we find in verse 4, do they not? Those who espouse the fantastical theory of evolution use the same arguments as these mockers who are seeking to explain all that we see today without God. Ultimately, what is believed today is what we see today in some form or another, that everything is, has always been. They argue that since we do not see miraculous interventions of God today, everything in the universe must be explained without reference to miraculous, to God. They mock anyone who suggests that we can explain things other than naturalistically. It's interesting that if you go to, and I, may, I have to confess I'm making up this number, okay, so you can fact check me. But I would say upwards of 99% of colleges and universities and even high schools and junior high schools and even some in the elementary uh, science departments, they explain everything how? Naturalistically, without God. We find this true in biology. We find it true in physics. We find it true in sociology. The whole lot, science is about what we can observe, though, and what is repeatable. And it is true that this universe operates, as best we know, on what we call the laws of physics. I'm amazed. I love astronomy. I'm amazed that we can assume that, uh, that the laws of physics work near Jupiter and Saturn and beyond Pluto in the same way that they work here so that we can send a little tiny spacecraft and hurl it out in space, and we can get some incredible pictures of what God created all the way out there. We're dependent upon, upon all of that. However, when we seek to explain the origin and the cause of all that we see, we have to have some outside of us explanation. Why? Because our science, which is dependent upon what? What is observable and repeatable does not work when you talk about how did all things come into existence? Because, well, they weren't there. But I know someone that was there and somebody who gave me a, a written record of how it all came to be. None of us were there when the heavens and earth were formed, right? Just checking. Such events are not repeatable. I'd love to get the, uh, this is how I age myself. I used to say I, I, I can't wait to get the video cassette of of the, this event. Then I moved on to DVDs, and now it's a Blu-ray, and I don't know what's coming next. But however, I would love to see if God would allow how this all came to be, but it's not repeatable. In reality, when dealing with questions of where did all of this come from, it is only the miraculous intervention of God that best explains the data. But the mockers today, like the mockers of Peter, say God is best to be left out of all of this. So when asked, how did life begin, where do they begin? They begin without God. They begin by answering only through naturalistic explanations. They observe 
and we all observe the same thing. We all see the same evidence. They observe small changes in animals from generation to generation, and then they make the conclusion that this must be the key to understanding the past. They claim that they must have started then in some kind of warm pool of premortal soup where all the necessary building blocks of life were present, and these by some, we can't say miraculous, but by by chance, marvelous chance, came together to form the first simple organism, and that one then found a way to reproduce itself, and then after millions and millions and millions of years, that original uh, organism was able to evolve eventually into a multitude of species of insects and animals and, and even humans that we see today. As it has been so poetically put, We've been from, uh, from the goo to the zoo to you. It's evolution. When geologists take a look to explain the presence of mountains and oceans today, along with the fossils and the canyons and all the coal beds, they do not look first to God for an explanation and to his word. They look to naturalism. They look to see how things are working today, how slow are the processes of geological formation, and they conclude that the past must have been exactly the same way, very slow processes. Rivers must have cut out mountains little by little. Fossils must have been formed by localized mudslides or fast accumulating windstorms. The mountains must have formed by the slow push of tectonic plates that are moving, making their way across the Earth's mantle. The explanation of the universe itself, along with all the physical properties like light and gravity and, and electromagnetivity and chemical properties, all must be explained how? naturalistically. Some say it has always been this way. Others say that there may have been some chance explosion by which we come to see everything we've seen. There are a few at least who have now suggested that there, there appears to be some kind of, what do they call it, intelligent design rather than mere chaotic chance forces, but they are in the small minority. But beloved, this is the mindset this is the mindset, not just of Western thinking. This is what Peter's dealing with. This is what Peter is trying to address in this particular text. Such a naturalistic approach to all things cringes at the thought that you must have something supernatural, that there must be a God involved. And for anyone to dare suggest that God, that such a person exists, that such a person uh, has actually done these things, well, if you teach that, you'll be laughed out of the laboratory. You'll be scorned for holding what they believe is to be pseudoscience. They will be mocked for pursuing methods of explaining things in such a way that point to God. The presupposition that all things can be explained without God leads a person to concoct ideas and explanations that do what? Leave God out. They say it is improper to bring a presupposition into the laboratory. It is anathema to bring your God thought into the laboratory. Ironically, they bring their own presupposition into the laboratory by saying there is no God. Why is it that people think this way? Why is it that people are so pessimistic in their thinking that they don't want a God? It is, as we saw back in verse 3, because they want to be those who are following after their own lust. We read in Romans 1 that God has made himself known. Romans 1 says God has made himself known to how many people? To every single person person God has made himself known but they do not want to to know him so that they might pursue their own unrighteousness because they do not want to be accountable to the creator in the words of Romans 1:18 they suppress the truth in unrighteousness according to verse 19 although they know the truth about God that they know that God exists and that he will one day judge the world they choose to reject that truth. According to verse 20, they deny God's power as creator and they deny his attributes. In verse 21, they acknowledge the God they know 
they, uh, they refute, they, although they know God, they refuse to give him thanks and honor him as God. Why? Why do people reject God and his truth? You know the answer. Why do they concoct ways to explain everything that we see without God? So that they, beloved, can follow after their own lust. And what is Romans 1? If you're familiar with it, it is people following after their own lust. And God saying, have at it. It's only going to bring you your own judgment and mine. For the wrath of God is revealed against all of these things. This is the predicament and the pessimism of the mockers. They deny the miraculous, which included denying the miraculous return of Christ. They do this not because Christ and his word is unclear. It's not as if God, is it a veiled teaching that Jesus said he's coming again? We took time last week to expose all of that, that Peter would have heard all of those teachings. They deny this because they want their own way. They deny it because they want to justify a lifestyle and a behavior that is contrary to God's standard. And we see the very thing today. With all that we see going on in our world socially, socially with the in rise of increasing sexual perversion that reaches down even to the classrooms of our young children, we must see their end game. What is their end game? They want to live lives without accountability. They want to live lives without threat of judgment. Peter says that the mockers will come with their mocking, that they will ask their scornful questions and make their scornful statements, but none of what they say and none of what they do changes the truth. Jesus is coming back. Jesus will receive all those who have trusted him as Lord and Savior. And so the question is, have you trusted him now? Because if you do not receive him as Lord and Savior now, you will receive him later as Lord and Judge. But there's still more. We see now next the perversion of the mockers in verses 5 and 6. The perversion. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Beginning in verse 5, Peter now sets out to dismantle the argument. Peter now wants to show these mockers uh, really what they're rejecting regarding the return of Christ. Peter begins by saying, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. When they maintain, everything has been the same, that there's not been divine intervention from the very beginning of creation. They are maintaining something that denies the very testimony of Scripture itself. They're saying that God has not been active throughout history, that God was not active in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, right up to Peter's day. And considering the time frame from Adam to Peter, interesting, is about 2,000 years. The time frame from Peter to believers today is about what? 2,000 years. They would, there would be those who might say that for 4,000 years, from the time of Abraham till today, nothing much has changed. We have not seen the hand of God. Apart from technological advances, people still, though, are born. They still live lives. They still die, all naturally. But Peter is about to point out that the things that things have not always been the same. As we come to see, God not only created the world out of water and by water, but God also, he said, intervened and destroyed the world after he created it with what? With water. God destroyed it with water through a flood that was a judgment upon the world for doing what? Rejecting God's word. And God's ways. What are the mockers doing? Rejecting God's word and God's ways. You think everything's been the same? I can prove to you that the flood had changed everything where God judged the world for its sin. And I'm telling you, Christ is coming again. And he will judge those who mock God's words and God's ways. This is the argument 
that he's building. Only this judgment won't be with water. It will be, as we'll see, with fire. Verse 5 is interesting to consider. Our NASB text translates the Greek, it escapes their notice, which is a rather soft way of rendering their original text. It's helpful to consider some of the other translations, and some of you might have them with you, ones that reveal, I think, really what is the bluntness and the hardness of the statement. The uh, English standard, the ES, ESV, puts it this way, they deliberately overlook It's not that it just escapes their notice. They deliberately overlook these things. The NIV puts it this way. They deliberately forget. And the New King James actually translates it this way. They willfully forget. Now, if you have your NASB, I do like the marginal reading much better. It says this. They are willfully ignorant of this fact. Although it's kind of a confusing thing. How are you willfully ignorant? They choose to ignore what God has said. Those who deny the second coming of Christ using the naturalistic arguments of verse 4 are those who are intentional and willful to set aside the truth. Or how did Paul put it in Romans chapter 1 verse 18? He said they deliberately suppress the truth in their unrighteous living. It is not that they do not know there is a God. And it's not that they don't have an idea of what God demands. Such persons choose to forget. They seek to put it out of their mind. All that God has done since the beginning of creation. They try to blot out of their heads a most critical observation. Peter's about to burst their bubble their claim that, all, that since all creation, everything has been the same. That's not a viable argument, Peter says. So Peter explains in verses 5 and 6 that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. They were formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. Here Peter mentions both, look, listen, the creation of the world and the destruction of the world. You see those two things? Uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis 1. I think it would be easy to find. Keep your, keep your finger here in 2 Peter. But, but if you can get to Genesis 1, just follow along with me with this. Because I believe Peter here is intentionally echoing Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. You, you've read this a few times, right? Every January you read it uh, pretty much. In Genesis 1, 1 through 3, this is the time when the world was brought into existence. Brought into existence how? By the word of the Lord. When God said, let there be light, and there was what? Light, verse 3, by the word of God. Isn't that what Peter just said? Then in, in the subsequent six days of creation, everything that God said would come to be, came to be. In verse 6, when God spoke of the expanse of heaven, the expanse of heaven, what? Came to be. If you look in verses 11 and 12, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And the earth said, no. No, it says the earth brought forth vegetation. Look at verses 14 and 15. By the word of God, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heaven, of the heavens. And then we read that, boom, the sun and the moon and the stars all appear in the sky. Look at Genesis 1, 20 and 21. By the word of God, God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And guess what happened to the water, folks? It began to teem with the living creatures. In Genesis 1.24, when God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, the earth brought forth living creatures. And finally, if you're not sensing the pattern yet, in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image as the crown of our creation. And so what happened? God made man in his own image. This is the very act Peter has in mind as he writes. He knew that according to Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens 
were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Peter is echoing these themes when he says, By the word of God, the heavens and the earth and all that was in them was created. This is the power of God's word. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 11.3, that it is by the word of God that the worlds were prepared so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Theologians refer to this. You're going to have a nice, fun word for you. They call this God creating out of nothing. It is ex nihilo, out of nothing. He spoke, and it was done. He spoke, and it was sufficient. He spoke, and creation obeyed. Peter's point is that by the word of God, he, created, he spoke and created the world. Hold on to that thought. God spoke the world into existence. Hold on to that. Peter keeps pressing this creation picture in verse 5 by his use and, uh, and emphasis of another word. I don't know if you caught it. It's the word water. Peter seems to like the word water for some reason. We read that God created the world how in verse 5? Out of water and by water. Now, if we go back to Genesis 1, you should still be able to find that. It cannot escape your notice that in the book of Genesis, there's a lot of what? Water. In Genesis 1-2, on the first day, we read that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the what? The waters. In Genesis 1-6, the second day, we read that God created an expanse in the midst of the waters to separate the waters from the waters. In verse 9, on the third day, God said, let the waters Below the heavens be gathered into one place. In Genesis 1.20, the fifth day, God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. I am sensing a pattern here, or am I all wet? Sorry, I had to add that. Beloved, Peter tells us that God created the world out of water and by water. Why? Why this attention to water? Because Peter wants to drive home this point in verse 6. Notice what he says. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Here Peter brings us to the flood narrative itself. We're going all the way back to Noah. This is a major theme, by the way, in Peter's uh, mind, in Peter's writing. This is the third time in two letters that Peter has mentioned the flood. Recall back in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 5, where he mentions Noah and the flood. And in, chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, he also mentions Noah and the flood. Let me make this distinction here. In, chapter two, uh, in 2 Peter 2, 5, he mentions Noah and the flood. In, chapter, in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, uh, 1 Peter 3 verse 20 he mentions Noah and the flood we have the mention of the flood here but who's not mentioned Noah why because Noah was saved and now Peter's going to talk about those who are not saved we're not going to mention Noah now what are we to remember about the flood Noah's flood stands of a, as a marvelous picture a twofold picture of salvation to those who obey God as found in the person of Noah, and the destruction of those who do not obey God. But Peter's point in verse 6 is not on salvation. It is on destruction. God destroyed. God devastated. God decimated the world then with the flood, with the waters of the flood. The testimony of Genesis is clear, and it obviously impacted Peter Everything that has been destroyed, everything had been destroyed by water. Let me just read for you the testimony of God's word in Genesis 7, a few select verses. On the very same day Noah entered the ark, the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the mountains were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, that's over 22 feet, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth, what? Perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind all, of all that was on the dry land all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, 
die. That was a bad day. There has never been, beloved, never been in the history of humanity a darker day than this day that's described in Genesis 7. And in that day, contrary to the false teachers who say nothing's changed, everything changed because of the flood. After the flood, the Genesis record reveals that lifespans of people dramatically decreased. Where people were living seven, eight, nine hundred years, immediately after the flood, we see their lifespans go from 600 to 400 to 200 and continue down. It would seem that even the atmosphere changed, for now a rainbow could be seen in the sky for the very first time, according to Genesis 9. It appears that drastic changes came upon the earth, but Peter's point is that people need to remember that all is not the same since the beginning of creation. Things have changed in this world since God first brought everything into existence. Most of us have seen some degree of that amount of devastation, uh, of the devastation that water can can cause. I know we have one of our own who dealt a lot with water damage, right? Used to. Gladly retired. You can take a trip out to the Grand Canyon. You can see the devastation of water, what water can do. But where evolutionists and naturalists will tell you that the Grand Canyon was formed by a little bit of water over a long period of time, the scripture would say, no, it was made with a whole lot of water in a very little bit of time. The flood gives us the mechanisms to understanding the formation of rock layers and the presence of fossils and so much more. But perhaps now a question arises, why has it been some 4,000 years since that kind of catastrophe. I mean, how bad was it that God had to bring a flood upon the earth? I mean, we're not very far from creation at that moment, and now we're saying it's been some 4,000 years since that. Maybe maybe the argument is, is important here. Well, let's bring it to our last point here, the portion of the mockers. Verse 7. But by his word, What did we tell you to hang on to before? By the word of God, he created the heavens and the earth. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved, not for water, but for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You talk about something that ought to cause a mocker to now shake. The mockers, these ungodly men, Peter says, they have a portion, meaning they have a destiny. There's a lot that is theirs. If the world was so bad so as to be destroyed by water in the past, the argument would be, why has it been so long since God has destroyed the earth again, since we've seen sin? Don't we see sin just as rampant as before? Why has God tarried so long, beloved? It is not that the world does not deserve it. It is not that God could not have brought a multitude of catastrophes upon this earth because of its sin. I remind you of this only because of, it's only because of his grace and it's only because of his mercy that he's tarried so long. Again, consider how verse seven begins, but by his word. Even as it was the word of God that brought the world into into existence, Even as it is the word of God that brought forth the flood, so it is, Peter says, by the word of God that our world has so far been spared this judgment. But it's also by the word of God that it is being reserved for judgment. Do you remember the purpose of the rainbow that appeared after the flood? We all know this, right? Basic Sunday School 101. It was a promise God promised Noah, never, it says in Genesis 9.15, never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now let me tell you something. This is the thing I get to tell you as a minister of God's word. I know you came here to hear this great thing. God has kept that promise. He's never destroyed all flesh with water. And every time you see a rainbow, you're supposed to remember that. 
However, this does not mean that the earth will not be destroyed again. Rather, we learn here that there is a day of destruction that is coming upon the earth. It is a day when the earth will be destroyed, not with water, but by fire. Even as water destroyed the world the first time, fire will destroy this world the second time. And how many people survived the first destruction, people? Just eight. If you are not in the ark who is Christ... You will not survive the coming judgment. You will not survive it. Again in verse 7, by the word of God, this present, the present heavens and earth are being reserved, are being uh, uh, preserved, kept for fire, kept for a day of judgment. And it's a judgment not upon the godly, but it says upon the ungodly. One of the more more recent media hypes that I'm sure you might have heard about is this thing called global warming or climate change. I read that in July of 2023, last month, they said it was the hottest July ever recorded worldwide. May or may not be so. I did also read another article that said that in England, Scotland, and Ireland, they had their coldest July ever recorded. I'm not sure how the two reconcile. Regardless, I stand here and I tell you I do believe in global warming because God's word tells me I should believe in global warming. Not the way the world hypes it up right now. If the world thinks the world's going to be destroyed because of of their version of global warming, they, they have a rude awakening coming to them. This is found in scripture. We'll consider it in more detail in the messages to come. But this present heavens and earth are kept for judgment. And according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, if you look down there, you'll see that it says it will be quite the event. It says, looking and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat and no amount of water will squelch it. This is the portion of the unbelieving. This is the lot for the mocking. And Peter's point is that contrary to what the ungodly may tell you, contrary to what the false teachers may teach you, everything has not been the same since the beginning of creation. It was not the same in the past as God destroyed the world with a flood, and it will not be the same in the future as God will destroy the present world with fire. Ultimately, Peter is driving towards the main point And here's the main point, as found in verse 10, just remind you of this, that the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief. There is a certainty to Christ's return. It is going to happen, and when it does happen, especially for those who have been denying it, it will come seemingly suddenly, it will come unexpectedly, and it will come overwhelmingly. As we close, let me do so with the words of the Apostle John, who in the very next letter, if you just turn over a couple of pages, in 1 John 2, verse 18, makes this particular statement. He says, now little children, abide in Christ, live with Christ, dwell in Christ, have Christ be everything to you. My little children, abide in Christ, so that when he appears... Because he's coming again. We may have confidence and not shrink away from from him in shame at his coming. How will you see Christ when he comes? Will you shrink away in shame? Or will you lift up your arms? This morning I had... My, my youngest grandchild snuck up behind me, nine months old. I look behind him, and he gives me this big smile. I said, hi, Zeke, how are you? And his two little arms come up, 
no shame, only rejoicing when I reached down and I picked him up and I held him to my side where he subsequently ripped the microphone off my face. <clears throat> Will you shrink away in shame at his coming? He said, I don't want to be picked up. Or will you, with open arms, even so, Lord Jesus, come? Jesus is coming back, and the question is, are you living as one who is born again? Are you living as one who's been made anew, a new creature? Are you living for the glory of God or for the glory of yourself? I pray it be the former. Let us close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word that informs us not only of the delightful things and the blessings and the bliss of heaven, those things that belong to those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but you remind us of these difficult things too, these overwhelming thoughts that while we, if we are believers, may rejoice in the moment as we consider that this world being reserved for fire, this is not our lot. This isn't our portion. We eagerly await the Savior who's coming from heaven who will rescue us and receive us to himself. But Father, at the same time, we recognize this morning that we have family and we have friends. We have neighbors that have not responded to the gospel or their response so far has been to reject it. Father God, I pray that you give us missionary hearts, that you would give us hearts that would seek to do all that we can, can to persuade them, to challenge their thinking, to cause them to think carefully upon their eternal destiny and to give them the true path, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. May we show them Jesus not just in our words, but I pray, Father God, in the very way we live our lives, that we would be distinguished, that we would be holy. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us this resolve, that we might live lives again worthy of the one who has called us into his own kingdom and for his own glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.